0: Hi there. How's everybody doing? It's great to see all of you. Man, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been so long. That's good. It's good to see a lot's happening. Uh, good things happening in uh, in our family. My wife is pregnant, if I didn't tell you that. Yeah, very excited about that. And it's uh, it's a big thing because, you know, some of you may or may not know that it took my wife and I 10 years to have our first and so, um, and now my daughter is four and a half or so, and my son is turning two next month and then we're going to have a Christmas baby is what it sounds like. And uh, so basically what I'm saying to you is that we're open for business. And uh, so we're excited about that. But, uh, my, as I mentioned, my daughter is four, uh, she's four and a half. She has this new thing that she does. Um, she says, I love you all the time. It's really awesome. Sometimes it makes total sense. Uh, I was walking by her room the other day in, in the morning. I was going to get her ready for school, and uh, she was waking up, and I'm like, Mama, good morning, and she says, Puppy, I love you. And I'm, it was just a really awesome moment. Then we there's other moments that just doesn't really quite make sense. Um, the other day I was telling her, um, I said, just if you go to, it was in the evening, I'm like, Mia, why don't you go to your room, start cleaning up. And then, because it looked like a bomb had gone off, and I said, why don't you start cleaning up, and I'll be in there in a couple minutes to help you. So I walk in a couple minutes later, and uh, <clears throat> And uh, she's just playing with her toys. And I'm like, Mia, I, I asked you to clean up the toys. And she says, but bumpy, I love you. And, um, you know, at dinner the other night, um, she wouldn't eat her food. And so I'm like, Mia, I'm going to need you to eat. And she says, Papi, I love you. And I'm like, Mia, I really appreciate that. And I knew I had a moment. I had a moment. And so I said, Mia, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so the way that we show that we love God is that we do what he says. And I said, in the way you show you love me, is that you do what I'm asking you to do. And she says, OK, Poppy, can I say one thing? And I said, yes. She says, but, Poppy, I love you. And uh, so I'm like, this really isn't isn't really working. Um, and uh, so but my, my daughter's learning how, like, words and actions go together because um, she she's learned. Uh, we've taught her. Um, you know, all the fruit of the spirit, you know, in Galatians five. So she knows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, she's, she's got them all down, but she's got like the other day she recited to me all nine fruit of the spirit. And then, um, her brother had taken her juice, uh, and started drinking her juice. And then, so right after, so imagine she says to me, I'm like, Mia, what are the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Xander, you took my juice, bang, and whacked him across the head, and I'm like, Mia, listen, like two of the fruit of the spirit is like love and gentleness, all right? So, I, you, you know it, you know him, but you gotta know him, like do him, right? And so she, I said, so now, why don't you? One of the fruit of the spirit is love. Why don't you show Xander that you love him? And so she comes over, she hugs him, and she says, I love you, big boy, but don't ever take my juice. And so it's, we're working, we're working. Uh, but like what she struggles with at four, most of us will struggle with all of our lives. And that is this, is having our words and our actions match. Um, once again, we, we want our words and our actions to match. And, and for the most part, I think that it, it happens. But I think if we are really honest, there are areas of our lives where the thing that we really want and then what's actually happening are two different things. And so we try to find something that will help that. That is the for us, who we currently are, to be the person that we really want to become. And so we'll try to find something external. And a lot of times um, that's kind of what culture offers us is something external, whether it's a new gadget, a new relationship, a new experience to, to show us like, hey, this is what will make you become the person that you want to be. Essentially, the idea is something external is what will bring uh, bring the internal change that you want. What the Bible teaches is actually the exact opposite of that. Uh, that it's not something external that creates an internal change. Instead, what the Bible teaches is that there's something internal that changes, and that's what begins the process of transformation that works its way outward. It's like something happens inside of us, and then there's this chain reaction that works its way out. And so the question is, if we know that, why is there a disconnect? The reason there's a disconnect is because we all struggle with this thing called sin, right? We're, we're all sinners, um, and, you know, most of us, uh, you don't have to actually be told that you're a sinner. All of us are. And if you don't, just like watch your actions for the next like 20 minutes and you know, you'll know you figure it out and I'm sure we'll do something. And uh, and, and it, it's, it's sin that creates the disconnect. It's sin that causes us to recite the fruit of the Spirit and then whack our brother in, in the head, so to speak. Um, and so the question is, How do we experience victory over it, especially if you're in a place in your life where there's like one particular thing that you just struggle with? And the one particular thing that just kind of keeps seems to just keep eating your lunch over and over and over again. It's like, what is that? And sometimes we look to like an external factor or something that will kind of do the 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 behavior modification and and, and it doesn't work real well. But what really needs to happen is something internal that will um, that will just change things. And here's what I mean. I talked to a woman several years ago um, who had smoked for years and she quit in one day. And I mean, you know, for someone who had smoked for, I don't know, 15, 20 years and then she quit in one day. And and she was talking to me about it and I said, well, how did this happen? And she goes, well, I found out that I was pregnant. And um, when I found out that I was pregnant, I, I realized, you know, what smoking would do. And even though she had tried all the external things to quit, this love that she had for her child that was growing inside of her. Think about it. There was something internal taking place that now manifested itself and worked its way out in an external way. And and, and it now what had been an addiction now no longer became an issue. Isn't that interesting? I said in the first service, and I'm like, when I see the person pregnant, that wasn't my wife, by the way. Um, and um, I said that because my wife was in the first service because I like to joke around with her. And. Um, but then I stopped because, once again, I want to be happily married. Um, so <clears throat> but but here's the thing. And uh, by the way, I say that uh, because, you know, I bring up the smoking thing because I do have people that that say to me um, and I get this question still fairly regularly. Uh, and they'll say, Pastor, will smoking send me to hell? Because I guess there's people out there that teach that kind of stuff, that if you smoke, you'll go to hell. And so someone asked me that a few weeks ago and they said, Pastor, will smoking send me to hell? And I said, no, it won't. I said, although you will smell like you've been there. Um, so. Um, it's a good joke But I never get to use it So I just like to throw it in sometimes um, But here's the thing So if that's the case If there's something internal that needs to happen For external change and external transformation To take place How do we do that? How do we exp- If there's the thing that we're struggling with The thing that's just eaten our lunch That's just getting the best of us How do we experience victory over that? Well I believe that in, in Romans chapter 6 And I would invite you to turn there if you would to Romans chapter 6, what we're going to find is Paul, in many ways, is essentially going to say the same thing, and he's going to say it in three different ways. And we're going to look at it from these three different uh, angles, but essentially talking about about the same thing, teaching us how the gospel can actually um, teach us to have victory over whatever it is that we're struggling with, whatever it is that seems to be getting the best of us. And so that's where we're going to begin in chapter 6 of Romans in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, the father. That we also should walk in newness of life. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing I want to share with you, is that victory comes through understanding my new identity. It comes through understanding my new identity. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. Um, a few years ago, this was before Carrie and I had kids, um, we went into Target, and actually it was this Target right here up the street. And um, someone walked up to me and said, excuse me, sir, would you be able to tell me where the light bulbs are? And I said, Yeah. So if you go down this corridor, you're going to pass the toy section, you're going to get to close to the automotive, and you're going to hang a left. It's going to be a couple rows, uh, but on the right. Hey, thanks so much. Then someone walks over to me and, and, um, this is probably a few 10 minutes later or so. We're still walking around the store and, and somebody walks up to me and they said, sir, do you know if you have this in another size? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, why don't you ask that guy? You know, he works here. I'm like, okay. And, um, Anyway, I kid you not, a few minutes later, someone walks over and says, um, sir, could you, I get a price check on this? And I'm like, listen, I don't work here. And uh, and, and then the lady says to me, she says, well, it's I just sorry. I, I saw you wearing the red polo and the khakis and I just figured that you worked here. And uh, and I looked down and I'm like, I'm dressed like a target employee. And um, and, and, and it, that's when it all made like, I'm, you know, you ever have like that moment like now it all makes sense. You know, all this. The bulbs, the price check, you know, all of this makes sense. Um, and and uh, now the interesting part, is, I actually used to work at your work at Target when I was in high school. So I was still able to provide excellent customer service. Um, but but here's the thing. Right. And this is the thing that, that that is the important part is that just like how the polo and the khakis. Right. Um, give you a sense of identity. Right. They, they say that that's the identity of someone who works here in the same way. Listen, here's what here's what the distinguish it's a distinguishing mark in the same way. Baptism is is a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. And um, that's what when he talks about Paul does in the first few verses of Romans six, when he talks about understanding the new identity that we have as followers of Jesus, he actually uses baptism as the illustration to, to show us that this is how we've gone from an old life now to a new life. Now, why is that? It's because baptism is a picture of what happens when someone comes to know Jesus. They go into the water. And as Romans says, they go into into the water, identifying with Jesus in his death. Then they come out of the water, identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. And so please understand that uh, baptism is not salvation. Baptism is what people who are saved, people who have come to know Jesus. This is what they do. Being baptized does not mean that you're a Christian. Uh, In in fact, you can get baptized a hundred times and it not have any effect. Instead, it's when someone says, Jesus died for me. I believe that he died so that I could be forgiven. And that that and so it's believing the gospel that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, according to the scriptures, that that is what saves a person. But what happened? Then what's the significance of baptism? The significance of baptism is, is that it actually is a outward representation of what's happened inwardly. That's why every Christian gets baptized, because baptism is not a great suggestion or a good idea. It's a command of Jesus. In fact, in your notes, in Matthew chapter 28, this is before Jesus ascended to heaven. He said these words. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Disciples of Jesus are commanded to be baptized. So when you come to know Jesus, I mean, it's pretty close to the top of the list of what does God want me to do now? One of the things is uh, to be baptized. And baptism is one of the things that separates the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. It's the difference between dating and and marriage, right? Um, Just like how a wedding ring... Is the outward symbol of an inward commitment that you've made in the same way what baptism does it does the same thing It's an outward picture of what's already happened to you inwardly Uh, The Apostle Peter would say it this way in your notes, but baptism is more than just washing your body It means turning to God with a clear conscience because Jesus Christ was raised from death Now some of you come from traditions uh, where you were baptized as an infant just so you know, that was my story as well. Um, my parents, um, you know, I, my parents took me to a church and I was baptized as an infant and, um, I, I was there. I have the pictures to prove it, but I was not part of that decision. I was, I was very, very young. And, um, but there comes a point in time I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. And so that was three and a half years ago. Um, no, uh, I, I became, I, I became a Christian at age 19. And, um, and when I became a Christian, I started reading what the Bible says about baptism. And I made a decision that I needed to be baptized because I needed the decision to be mine. Because one of the things that you look at is throughout the scriptures, there's no infant that actually ever gets baptized. It's always people of their own volition. It's people making up their own mind to be baptized. And so um, so what happened was is that I realized like I needed to make this decision for myself because infant baptism spoke a great deal about your parents faith. But when you decide to follow Jesus and go into the water, it speaks a great deal about your faith and the decision that you've made to follow Jesus. And I've always asked I've asked this question, especially when I was a younger Christian, I always thought, like, why does why baptism? Like, why would he require baptism as opposed to something else? And um, I mean, obviously, there's symbolism, there's significance to it, uh, to going into the water and what water symbolizes and all that. But I think there's something even more basic. And that is this that baptism is simple. Um, it, there's there, you know, I mean anyone has the ability to be baptized um, Because if we had come to know jesus and he had said I want you to go climb this mountain I want you to go slay this giant. I want you to go on this trek on your knees for so many miles Listen, we would do it because god asked us to do it. But instead here's what he says. Listen, i've done all the hard work Here's what i'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be baptized And as a simple act of obedience and here's what why I think it's so important if you're here and maybe you became a Christian over the last year and maybe you haven't made that decision, can, can I just encourage you in something to make the decision to do it? In fact, on the back of your connection card, you'll see that we're having a, a, a baptism in July. You just decide, check that off. I'm going to do this. And here's why this is important for, for each of us. Um, if you have come to know Jesus and, and you haven't made the decision to be baptized and you just keep putting it off, well, I'll get to that when I get to that. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get very used to disobeying God. Well, God, I became a Christian and then God wanted to be baptized, but I said no. And then I want Then God asked me to do something else. And I said no. And then I just kept putting it off. And then, you know, what happens? You get to this place where many Christians are when they say, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God's will for my life is. When here's really what essentially it came down to what it came down to is God has told you some things to do. But we just didn't do it. And so we, we 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 get into this like pattern of, of disobedience when really what God wants us to do is listen. It's something really simple. So just go ahead and do it. And then sometimes the question is, well, who should be baptized? Am I ready to be baptized? Do I know enough to be baptized? Um, in, in the in the book of Acts, chapter eight, there's this really fascinating story of uh, a guy named Philip. And Philip is a disciple of Jesus, and God calls him to go down to the southern area of Israel. Um, and as he was going down to the southern area of Israel, he, he sees this chariot um, and, and he sees this guy kind of sitting in, in, in the back and um, and he walks along. And it, it's, it's a guy who's he's an Ethiopian eunuch and um, the guy is actually on his way back. He had gone up to Jerusalem to worship at a feast, hadn't really found what he's looking for. And he's on his way back, back to Ethiopia, where he's from. And um, Philip is walking by and God tells Philip, I want you to go talk to this guy. Well, as he gets near the chariot, he hears this guy reading the scriptures out loud, and he gets to this place in the book of Isaiah that's talking about Jesus. And then basically, essentially, he's like, hi, can I help you? And um, the, the eunuch says, hey, do you know anything about the Bible? You can help me out with this. And he says, yeah, well, well, what is it? And so he reads this whole thing that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, which is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus. And look at what, listen to what happens. As I put this in your notes in, in Acts 8. It says, now, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came near to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Phil, uh, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and he baptized him. You see, what does it take? Do You have to know everything about the Bible. Here's what it is. You've come to know Jesus. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. You believe that Jesus died for you, that God raised him from the dead and that he died for your sins. Listen, that place is the place where it says that's it. That makes you a Christian. If you're a Christian, you go into the water and uh, you get to that place of obedience of being baptized. And so if you haven't made that decision, let me just encourage you in the back of your connection card to make that decision. Because if you really want to experience victory and transformation in your life, here's where it begins. It begins by identifying with your new identity as a Christian. And that's why baptism is the perfect place to begin. And the conversation goes on in, in verse five. And here's what Paul says. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, once again, still speaking of baptism, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is when you come out of the water, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves of sin for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ Having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing that I want you to note about how victory comes into our lives. The second issue, it's by understanding our new identity, but it's also by uniting my life. With Jesus's it's uniting my life with Jesus's life. You see, um, years ago, several years ago, I, I officiated the wedding of a really good friend of mine. And uh, afterwards, one of the people that was in the audience uh, there at, at the wedding was a guy who was my old boss. When I was um, in, in college, I, I worked at this company that manufactured home accessories and uh, I did like sales and whatever at, at this uh, at this company. And so he um, so this guy was there. And so when I finished college and then started in ministry, that's when I left uh, that company and, and started uh, working as an intern at, at the church that I was at. And so anyway, we. Um, <clears throat> He gets there and after the service, he finds me and he tells me, man, I, I just it's amazing to see you again. And you're doing it's great to see you doing so well. And he complimented me about the service and and all of that. And then he starts joking with me and he says, all right, Bobby. And he called me Bobby and he says, all right, Bobby, um, it's time to get back to the office and get those, you know, sales going and shipping some stuff out. And, and we kind of had a good laugh about it, um, recognizing that that season of my life was over. But here's the thing. Imagine with me that. He had said, all right, you're done doing the pastor thing. Now it's time to get back to the office and get those orders out. And imagine if I would have said, all right, well, let me just get my I'll get changed out of my suit. And then we'll go over there and and, and take care of it. Like you'd say, like, what, you know, what, are you insane? Um, Well, but here's here's the reason why. Why? Because once you leave a place, that person is no longer your boss. Right. You had a boss. You decide to leave that company or whatever. You go somewhere else. The old boss no longer has any power or authority over you. But listen, the same thing is true when it comes to sin. There was a time when sin controlled us, and then we came to know Jesus. And now, here's what the Bible says, that sin's power has been, and this is to quote Paul, has been quote-unquote done away with. That term done away with in the Greek language literally means this. It means it's been rendered inactive. It's been rendered inactive. In another way it could be translated, it's been paralyzed. You see... The Bible says this, that, that this, the, the old man has been rendered inactive. Now when the Bible says the old man, don't think about your dad, right? You know, you know the old man, what's he doing in there? You know, it's not, I'm not talking about your dad, it's not talking about, you know, like this uncle you have. The old man refers to our sin nature, the old nature that we inherited from Adam. But this is where the change happens, and this is, this is so huge, this, this idea. And that is, when I recognize When we recognize that sin is like the old boss that no longer has any authority in my life. Here's what happens. Things begin to change because the only power that it actually has is the power that we give it. Because sin can't make the demands that it used to have because, once again, we died to sin. Once again, using the picture of baptism, went into the water, identifying with Jesus in his death. We came out of the water, identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. So here's what happens. That old person goes into the water and is done. And then there's this resurrected person that comes out of the water that now we have the power to say no because that other person has been done away with. It's been rendered inactive. That's why in verse 11... He says this, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead. Now, once again, when he says reckon yourselves, please don't think that Paul is from the south. Right. Is he from Alabama or something? You know, I reckon, uh, you know, he's, he's like writing this as he's, you know, drinking sweet tea or something. Um, that's not the case. Um, instead, he um, <laughs> this is a joke there and I'm not going to say it. Um, I'm, I'm exercising self-control. Um The one of the fruit of the spirit, my daughter will be happy. Um, But but here's the thing is that when he says I he says that reckon yourselves, it's actually in the Greek language, it's an accounting term, which basically means to consider it, count it up, think it through. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Think about this. Here's what he's saying. Jesus died. He died for sin that all of us have committed. When he rose again, he rose again and now is living to the father. And he says that's this way, in the same way, you've, you've become a Christian, you died to sin, and now we have resurrection power working in our lives. And so let me, in, in this way, because this is this idea of you're letting go of an old person and putting on a new person. This is at the whole heart of this idea of transformation. In your notes, I put Ephesians 4 in there. Let me read it to you. He says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed... You have heard of him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, now here's the question. The question is, if the old man is dead, it doesn't have any power. And the new person that I've become since becoming a Christian has all this power to say no to sin. Why do I still sin? Right? I mean, that's kind of that's the question. I mean, why are we experiencing that? And this is what verse 12 warns about. We're going to read it in a moment. But listen to what it says. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Listen, that phrase, do not let sin reign. What does a person who reign does? The person who reigns has all the control. He has all the power. He has all the dominion. But he says, you don't let him reign. Instead, listen, what happens is, is sometimes we let sin reign because we think that sin has all the power and we are powerless. But instead, when we allow sin to, to, when we think clearly and we say, no, you're not in control. You don't have power anymore. You're, you're the old boss. There's a new boss. There's a new sheriff in town and it isn't you. You see, but it's all real. Let me talk about it in a real practical way how we can be dead to sin and alive to God. Um, I have a uh, I have a friend who several years ago, his wife put him on a diet because, you know, that story's going to end well. Um, no, his wife put him on a diet and she one day woke up and she said, that's it. You're going on a diet. You are going to eat what I tell you to eat. And uh, so for whatever reason, he reluctantly said yes. And she's not that great of a cook, but she um so she started making him this food that is just absolutely horrible and um, and so he's telling me this story right and here 's kind of how it goes. Um, she would make him this breakfast and because she was there, he would like suffer through it and then she would pack his lunch and then he would get to the office and the first thing he'd do when he walked into the office is that he would take the lunch and throw it in the garbage and then he would eat whatever he wants and then after he's done after he did that, he would go home and then he would have, she would make this like really horrible thing for for dinner. And so he decided to start doing this. He would eat the breakfast because she was there. He would eat whatever he wanted for lunch because he would just throw away the lunch that she packed for him. And then on his way home, he would stop at McDonald's and eat a Big Mac, a large fry, a large Coke and a hot fudge sundae really to just stick it to her. Uh, I, I suppose just, you know, just like because of the man. Uh, and uh, so then here's what happens. And then he would go home. Right. Because, I mean, you know, who can like eat a dinner after you've had dinner? And so and then he would just kind of like pick at it a little bit. And so he tells me all this and he says, of course, I'm telling you this and you're sworn to secrecy. And I'm like, well, all right. Well, a couple weeks later, um, I'm talking to his wife and his wife says, I, I put my husband um, on this diet. And uh, and he's like, not, you know, he's barely he's like he can't even finish the food that I'm giving him. And I'm like, wow, that's something. And uh, and she says, but here's the weird thing. He stepped on the scale after two weeks of the diet and he's gained five pounds. <laughs> and now, you know, I have all this information. But I'm sworn to secrecy because it's like, you know, pastor client privilege or something, you know, whatever that works. And uh, so he's like, I'm not sure how to do that. And so she's like, so I, I don't even know what to do. So and uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's something. You know, it's just. Crazy things happen, don't they? And, uh, and she's like, what do you think it is? And I'm like, who am I, you know, to say really what happens on the way home? You know, I don't know. And, uh, and so, but here's the thing. Now, here's, here's the point that, that I'm making. Because he was feeding one appetite, he had no appetite for something else. And listen, in the same way, if you say, I want to be dead to sin and alive to God, here's what you've got to do. You've got to feed one appetite so well, so that you have no appetite for the other thing. Um, Native Americans have this story that they that they tell. Um, they teach their kids this about um, kind of the good and evil that's that's within us. Um, the way they teach it is that um, every person has two wolves living inside of them. And so this is usually like the older. A uh, family member teaching younger kids about, you know, why people do good things or bad things. And he says, well, every person has two wolves living inside of them. And so the kids will naturally ask, well, then who which wolf uh, will win? And uh, and, and the, the older one will say, well, the way to silence the evil wolf is to only feed the good one. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying when he says, listen, here's the key. Be dead to sin and alive to God. The way that we are dead to sin and alive to God is to actually feed on the things that make us spiritually strong. And to fast, essentially, from the things that make our evil desires and flesh strong. Um, And so, and and listen, many of us know what those things are. Listen, many of you, you you come to church here, you attend here, and I I commend you for that. But listen, when you're here, be here. When you're here, make sure you bring your Bible with you. So that when I reference a verse, say, man, I'm going to circle that. I'm gonna underline that word. When I he says, hey, when I mention a word from the original language, I'm gonna circle it, and I'm gonna write it on the side, I'm gonna highlight that verse. I'm gonna write I'm gonna have a notebook with me and write some notes down so I don't forget what it is that, that I've heard. You know what'll what'll that'll that'll feed your spirit. What'll feed your spirit? Listen, if you just take a few minutes every day, I'm not talking about reading the whole Bible in an afternoon. I'm saying you take like ten minutes when you wake up and you say, I'm just gonna Pray and I'm gonna read something out of the Bible. You say I'm just gonna read one chapter a day. You do that, then start then. And you get on a, on a reading plan. Maybe it's a reading plan that says I'll read through the whole Bible in a year or two years. But here's what happens. The point is, it's not the, the um, it's not the duration. It's the frequency that's important. So it's not like, well, it's but I read for an hour yesterday and then but I, I didn't read anything for the next three months. No, instead, you're better off reading five minutes a day than than just, you know, kind of binging on, on one day, because the key is this and this is what I've seen over and over is that if you will just take a few minutes and in those few minutes every day, you'll just read something from the scriptures and ask God to to work that in your life. Here's the thing that will happen. What will happen is, is that you will focus and you'll find God allowing you to use those verses, and those verses you will hide in your heart and never forget. And that will begin to now feed you spiritually and build you up spiritually. Listen, you want to grow spiritually, do something like this. so simple. You're talking with somebody, and uh, they're going through a tough time. A lot of times we'll say this. We'll say, hey, you know, I'll pray for you. But instead of just saying, I'll pray for you, what if you did this? Um, I started this years ago, and that is I would write I write down when I just say I'll pray for you. I'll write down that I'm praying for this person and um, and I'll have a list of people that I'm praying for. And then here's what I'll do. I'll follow up and say, hey, what happened with that? Because the whole reason that I'll say that is because I want to write it down in my notebook. And I'm telling you, you want something that will supersize your faith. I mean, this is like faith steroids. If you want to, like, grow, um, you know, your spiritual muscles. You start asking yourself. You start asking people that you're praying for. Hey, I was praying. um, I was praying for the job situation. What happened? Oh, you're never going to believe what happened. You, you know, we talked the next day. This and this and this and this. And whoa. And then you talk to somebody else. Say, hey, I was praying about this thing in your family. What happened? Oh man, you're not going to believe what God did. And what you know what happens? You start seeing this connection that I start praying and God starts answering. And I start praying for something else and God starts answering. I start praying and God starts answering. You know what? You realize, hey, this whole prayer thing actually works. Hey, this whole thing of, you know, you call on God and God says, hey, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm ready to meet the need. And then you start building up your spiritual muscles to the point where now when something goes wrong, you, your first inclination is not to just kind of take matters into your own hands. Your first matter, your, your first course of action is to say, you know what? Let me pray and get some perspective. So I know what exactly is that God wants me to do. Listen, it's a simple thing where you say, now I'm not operating and responding in the flesh to everything that happens. Instead, I'm operating in the spirit because my spiritual muscles have been built to such a degree that now the fleshly muscles can't stand a chance to it. Because whichever one you feed will get stronger. And whichever one you deny will get weaker. Well, look at how he ends this. same point that he continues. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God for sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Uh, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You're either that one slaves to obey, whether to sin leading to death or to obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of righteousness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what fruit did you have then in the things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have you the fruit of holiness and to the end, everlasting life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the third one. It's that victory comes through presenting myself as God's slave, presenting myself as God's slave. Now, I understand that this is so odd in our culture because we tend to view uh, this this idea of slavery through the lens of uh understanding, you know, slavery in America, but that is not the biblical understanding of slavery. The Bible does not condone slavery like we saw in America. Um, but slavery was a reality in the Roman world in which the Apostle Paul was writing and in which the New Testament was written. Um, history tells us that um, upwards of there were, there were upwards of 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which is about one out of every three people in the Roman Empire. The difference is now in 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 in, in America, um, slavery was based on race and it was for life. In the Rome in Roman culture, every race had slaves and every race were slaves. Once again, um, in America, it was based on um, a, a, a particular race and it was for life. Uh, in the Roman Empire, slavery was based on economics, um, and the, the issue was this: if someone if, if you owed someone a great deal of money, much more than you could repay, there was no chapter 11. You know, you weren't calling an attorney to file for bankruptcy in the ancient world. There was none of that. You had a debt. You paid it. That was it. And you figured out a way to do it. But if you had a debt that you said it was just more than than you would be able to bear. You would go to the person to whom you borrowed this money or owed this money. And you would say, here's the only thing that I can offer is myself. And so here's what I'm willing to do. I am willing to make myself your slave. Essentially, I'll make myself your employee. But instead of you paying me, for the, we will create a season of time, three, four, five, six years, to which I will be your slave, and then I will pay back all that I owe you. But at the end of that time, I am now free. So it wasn't for life. It was for a particular period of time until someone had, set, uh, had paid the debt that they had. In the Eastern world, there was this understanding, even though the concept is a little foreign to us. The, in the Eastern world, there was an understanding that because you owed God your life, if he had saved you, then you were essentially God's slave. And this idea is rooted in uh, in the first commandment. And I put the first commandment in your notes. Uh, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason that this is all tied together is because whatever it is, we all worship something. And whatever it is that we worship, we are a slave to. And that is, we are, whatever we give our best time and effort and energy and, and resources and, and, and thoughts and all of that, that is what we serve. You and I are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. Now I recognize that some of us here might say, there's no, I'm a slave to no one. I'm my own man. No, you aren't. Because if you're human, and I'm guessing most of us are, Um, Now, here here's the truth. The truth of the matter is, is that as human beings, we are all hardwired to worship. We are all hardwired to worship something. So even the person who doesn't believe that he's worshiping something, though, I worship nothing. He still worships something. And you say, well, how is that? Listen, if you want to know what you worship, you really essentially just have to answer three questions. And here, here's here's I have them there in your notes. Let me give them to you. Here's the first one. Do you want to know what you worship? What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, because um, honest, like, you know, now we say like, oh, injustice makes me angry or you know, human suffering makes me angry. And I would I would agree that that should make us angry. But if we're really honest on a day to day basis, what makes us angry? It's not. Injustice. You know what it's more? It's inconvenience. It's when people try to take something that's ours, which is really just pride. Um, It's when somebody disrespects me. That's that's, you know, which essentially goes still rooted in pride. Um, All of that. That's the stuff that that makes us angry. And that's where we can find what it is that we actually serve, because we can say that we're serving God. But we give all our best effort, energy um, and thoughts and, and actions and resources to something else. And guess what? That other thing, if you say, well, you know, because there's people say, I don't believe in God, but yet they give all of their effort and energy to this one thing. When essentially all they've done is they say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, but I've taken this lesser thing and I've essentially made it God. Um, and so that's why whatever it is that makes us angry is what it is that we serve. It's one of the ways that we can find out. I was flying. I was in Atlanta this week. It was a quick trip. I flew up on Tuesday and flew home on Wednesday um, and I was flying home. And uh, I got upgraded to first class, which I was very excited about because um, I was really tired. And um, so I get my ticket. I, um, I board the plane and uh, I get to my seat and someone is sitting in it. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't. And um, and so now I was supposed to sit in five F and that was my seat. And it was uh, it was a window seat. I don't really like window seats. Um, because I like to be as far away from the outside of the plane as possible. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of an aisle seat guy. You have a little more space. And so but anyway, apparently the guy had um, the, the the guy that was sitting in my seat had the aisle seat. And so I, when I was actually when they upgraded me, I was actually trying to get an aisle seat. And they said, all we have is a window seat. And I'm like, well, I'll take it, you know, as opposed to sitting in the back. So um, so but so I walk in and the guy is sitting in my window seat. But he leaves open the aisle seat. I should have been happy, except I was mad. And this is just the bizarrety of life. And uh, so, I, first, the first thing I do when I get there is I just stand there, and I give him this look like, "What's up?" You know, and uh, and so he's and he's on the phone and doing this thing like making a deal or whatever it is that he's doing. And then finally, I say, "You know what? I'm just gonna sit because I wanted the aisle seat anyway." So I sit down and uh, I get my I put my my carry on uh, up top and I get my laptop out and I start doing some work. And then and I plug my headphones in and then I say to myself, if this guy gets up even one time to go to the bathroom, him and I are going to have words. And uh, and that was like this. And so I have this. This is my my thought now, because it's a night, you know, from Atlanta to Miami. It's like what an 80, 90 minute flight. Like, listen, dude, if you can not take care of your business before we take off, you're going to have to hold it. All right. And so anyway. So the guy doesn't get up. In fact, the guy like reads a book for a while, and then he goes to sleep, and then he just like looks around, and, which I've never understood. I get on a plane and I start working, um, and so anyway, so I'm 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 there, and then uh, we're getting close to landing, and so I put my computer away, and then I'm reading a book as we're um, as as we're landing, and I don't know if you do this, but you ever do this like when you're fl- it's kind of customary when you're flying with someone, uh, or you're you're flying and you're sitting next to someone the whole time, and then. Um, even if you don't talk to them during the flight, you say goodbye to them. I don't know if you do that, but I do that like I fly I'm like, hey, you know, hey, see you later. God bless you, whatever. Um, well, this guy, I'm getting up and the guy's like, hey, see you later. And my first response is uh, he says, hey, see you later. And I go, all right, man, watch yourself. And I walk off the plane and I'm like. And I even go like this. I like watch yourself because the gun sign, that's really what you want to do in an airport. Uh, and and Now. It's like, I didn't plan this. This is like, just like what comes out of my heart. You know, I mean, if I'm real honest. So the guy's like, all right, man, see ya." And I'm like, watch yourself. And all right, man, watch yourself. And I walk off the plane and I, you know, I get my iPhone, plug it, it put my headphones in. And I'm walking through the airport in Miami, going to my car. And, I, and I'm and I, and then I, I start like, I don't know if you ever do this, but you just kind of like hit the rewind button. You start replaying the last few minutes. I get up. See, ya. watch yourself. I get off the plane, I'm walking, and I'm like listening to music. And I have like these noise-canceling headphones. I can't hear anything except my own thoughts and, and my music. And so I'm walking through the airport, and I'm like, Bob, what's wrong with you? You got what you wanted. You didn't want an aisle. You didn't want a window seat. You got an aisle seat in first class, a seat you did not even pay for. And, 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 and you're upset. But it wasn't my seat. Now, here's the thing. And this is the thing I started thinking about, like, okay, And this is kind of like how I'm talking to myself. Thankfully, I didn't do any of this out loud. But I'm like, if you and the guy had gotten there at the same time and the guy had said to you, hey, listen, I prefer a window seat. Do you like aisle seats better? And I would have said, yes. Say, do you mind switching? I would have switched. Would you have been happy? And I said to myself, yes. But yet you got in and you still got what you wanted and you're unhappy. And my only response was, but that's my seat. But you didn't even want your seat. You see the deep problems that I have? And my only conclusion by the time I got to my car was, and this was like myself counseling myself, was, Bob, you have deep emotional problems <laughs> that really you need Jesus to help you um, because you're messed up. And, and and this is the whole thing. Now, listen, we all do this. Now, you say, well, well, what is that? What makes you angry? Here's what makes me angry. It was pride. It was pride. And, like the, the, you know, and you think you kind of like kill some of that as you walk with God. And then some of it's still kind of like, whoa, where's that? I'm telling you, I see this all the time. I'm at the gym like two weeks ago. I'm driving in and the, and the gym I go to, you got to park in this parking garage um, to, to get in. And I see two people arguing over the front spot. At a gym. Now, I want you to think about the insanity of this argument. Two people get there. Well, I got here first. I should have that. No, I should have that seat. I mean, I should have that, that, that spot and I should have that spot. And then they're arguing over this. Now, think about this two people arguing about who should have the front spot so both of them can walk in and walk on a treadmill. And, it's like, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm parking, I'm actually walking in, because um, I actually park far away because I don't want people to be near my car. Um, but, um, so I'm parking, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in, and I hear these two people arguing, and I'm like, what if I don't get involved in that because there's a proverb that says that a man who gets involved in another man's quarrel it's like a person who grabs a dog by its ears. So that's a good one to live by. It's one to grow on. All right. So here's what happens. Is that I'm walking by and I'm hearing this argument take place. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, guys, what if you looked at this entire parking lot like a treadmill? And what if you thought of your exercise as beginning from your car? You got out of your car and that's where the exercise began. And, and, and I'm telling you that I'm, I'm watching these two people argue over who should get the front spot so they can go walk on a treadmill. And I'm like, this is the, the epitome of insanity. And 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 But here's what it is. It has nothing to do with the spot. It has everything to do with, I don't want you to take what's rightfully mine. And it's all rooted in pride. And so that's the first one. Um, and listen, we can say we serve God, but when anything infringes on us, you see, when you take the lower place, and you know, because God said something, right? Didn't Jesus say something about when you take the lower place? Right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what does He do? He will lift you up. Second question is this, quickly. What are you afraid of? What is it that makes you so anxious that you can't even see straight? You know what we tend to get anxious over? If we're real honest. Money issues. When we're going through a tough financial time and there's a lot more month at the end of the money and we're saying, how in the world am I going to figure this out? Listen, here's what, here's what really happens is that what we're doing Essentially, as we've treated money like it's our God, because we've come to this conclusion that money can do some miracles. And so this is the thing that we serve, because that can be what solves all of of my problems. And and here's the thing. And a lot of us, if we were honest, we would say, what one thing would bring peace in your life? And that we're in church and we say, oh, Jesus, I want to grow spiritually. But, you know, once again, let's drive like five minutes from here, five minutes from now. And here's what we'll say. Well, what would really help? Well, if I had more money. But do you know, statistically speaking, like people with more money go to therapy more? Why? Because they don't have peace and they're looking for peace in their lives. So oh, I want more money so I can have peace. But do you know that that means you're probably going to end up in therapy? You know the thing is about poor people? Poor people just figure it out. Isn't that interesting? They ain't got money for therapies. So you know what they have to do? Just figure it out. You know, and it's like, well, so you had went through this tough time. What happened? I don't know. I just figured it out. You didn't go to therapy? Man, I can't afford therapy. We just work it out here in this house. Like, man, when I was growing up, we didn't have anything, you know. And uh, listen, I remember times when we would have like a mayonnaise sandwich. That's it. What do you got? Bread and mayonnaise. Let's do this. All right? That's what we had. And listen, there's, oh, man, I'm so depressed over mayonnaise and sandwich. Listen, you know what you do? You eat the sandwich and you keep going, right? Now, right, you start doing a little better. There's a... I need to talk to somebody. Well, what happens? Oh, this grape Poupon isn't bringing what I was hoping it would. You know, well, there was a time you just had a mayonnaise sandwich and now you got like the gourmet stuff and it ain't doing it for you. Well, that's ha- but are you really going to keep going with mayonnaise? Huh? Well, technically grape Poupon is mustard, but I hear the point. Um, but here's the thing. So I'm telling you, the whole thing is it's this, this, this thing happens. And sometimes the thing that we're looking to bring us peace. Why? Because we're afraid. And the thing that causes us the anxiety is the thing that we're actually worshipping. And here's the last one, quickly. What makes you sad? I'm not talking about like regular type of sadness. Like something bad happens, you get sad about it. That's normal and natural. I'm talking about the things that bring deepest sadness in your life. I'm talking about despair. Um, you know what, for some, for some people it is? And especially those of you that are single. It's not being in a relationship. That's the thing that brings despair Into your life. There's people that they get into a relationship and then the relationship doesn't work out. They break up and the first thing they do is go find another relationship to be in. Because the thought of being alone seems like a fate worse than death. Why? Because it's not that, oh, I just don't like being alone. No, there's something more to that. It's because somehow you believe that your significance is tied into being connected to another person. Rather than actually being connected to God. And so, listen, it's the things that make us angry, the things that we're afraid of, and the things that bring sadness and despair into our lives is what we will be able to see. And listen, if we're not aware of this, that there are actually spiritual masters in this life and we ignore them, oh, I don't know what that means. And here's what will happen. We will actually go through life not realizing that we're serving something rather than serving God, and we will be miserable. Because you know what the counterintuitive thing is, is that... When you serve something other than God, because you think it's actually going to bring you freedom, it actually brings you bondage. But if you actually serve God and saying, I'm a servant, a slave of God, you think it's going to bring you bondage, but it actually brings you freedom. Look at your notes. Last verse, John 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If you want transformation in your life, here's where it begins. It begins in a place of coming to know God. Because when we come to know God and we say, I'm a servant of God, the thing that we had been in bondage before, now the chains are broken. And what we, when we had been in bondage, now we know truth and the truth sets us free. And that's why verse 23 says this when he closes this conversation and he says this, he says, for the wages of sin is death. The paycheck that we get at the end of our lives for sinning is this death, spiritual death and eternal separation from God. And then in contrast to that, instead of the wages of sin, he says this, but the gift of God, the wages of sin are the gift of God, and it's our choice to make as to which it is that we want, because if we want transformation and we want victory, then the place that it has to begin from is a place of who it is that you're going to serve. You're going to serve sin. There's wages for that. And it's death or you can serve God and the gift of God is eternal life. And freedom. And if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, then maybe, then, and listen, and you say, I just, I keep making these same mistakes over and over again. Listen, the reason is, theologically, is because we're a slave of sin. Practically, it's because we're in these patterns of behavior. And the only thing that can change that is by changing our focus as to who it is that we're serving. Because naturally we serve ourselves. And that's what we get into the the ruts and the messes that we get ourselves into. You come to know Jesus. And here's what you'll find is that you actually are now serving him. And as you take the focus on, we take the focus off of ourselves and we put the focus on him. This issue and this process of transformation begins. It starts internally and works its way out. And so maybe as we're here and as we close, you say, that's the decision I need to make, the decision to serve God the decision to become a a slave of God that I might experience real freedom in my life. And if that's the case, then on the back of your connection card, um, there's a a spot that says begin a relationship with Jesus. And if if you're making that decision, here's here's a simple prayer. If you just say, dear God, I'm opening my heart. I'm inviting you in. I thank you for Jesus who who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting now forever in jesus name amen you pray a prayer like that in sincerity not because it's a magic formula but because it's what's happening in your heart that you want to express to god here's what i know he will hear he will respond and he will act and he will begin that process of transformation right now so let's pray together and lord we do want to thank you for your word that it's alive and active for your grace that it's available to us And for your son who died for us, that we might be free. So God, all of us have a next step to take. May we all have the courage and the boldness to take it. And to watch you work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.